The Water Values Podcast, Session 4. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. And here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to the Water Values Podcast. As Sinead said, I'm Dave McGimsey, and I'm so happy you've chosen to listen today. I think you're really going to enjoy this session of the Water Values Podcast. But first, I need to thank all of you for the terrific and enthusiastic support. Your emails have been great and provided a lot of thoughtful feedback. The Water Values Podcast is less than a week old, and already we've got a five-star rating on iTunes and well over 200 downloads. And that doesn't even count those of you who've been streaming it. So thank you so much. Let's keep the momentum going. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you haven't rated it or reviewed it yet on iTunes, please consider doing so. I'd be most grateful. Now, let's turn our attention to our next interview. Today, our guest is Mike McGuire. Mike is an engineer with a storied history in the water industry. And he's also the first guest I've ever interviewed on the Water Values podcast with his own Wikipedia page. He runs several water blogs, this day in waterhistory.wordpress.com and www.safedrinkingwaterdotcom.wordpress.com. He also authored the book The Chlorine Revolution: The History of Water Disinfection and the Fight to Save Lives. He'll relate to us some of the stories behind that book and really place safe drinking water in a unique historical context. And he's got a great story about the research behind the book, which I will leave for him to tell because it is a terrific story. We'll also talk about uh, Mike's travels to China and how the Chinese culture interacts with water. Now, as you know, before we get into the podcast, I need to make a few disclaimers. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment, I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, hi, Mike. Thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. I know you're very busy. Um, but it's great to have you here. To start off, if you could just please describe your background and how you got interested in water issues. Well, thanks, David, for having me. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, you've got a great uh, podcast plan, and I'm just uh, happy to, to be part of it. Uh, the water business and I came together, uh, I think, a combination of fate and luck, and which is what usually happens in, in lives. <laughs> Um, I met the uh, water commissioner for the Philadelphia Water Department in 1969 uh, up at Columbia. I, was, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, undergraduate, civil engineer, you know, so, so I could have done anything. But uh, I met uh, Sam Baxter, who was the water commissioner. He was at a senior engineering seminar uh, up in at Columbia University. And, I found him a fascinating individual, and I, um, I ended up interviewing him for my senior project, which 
was, and, and you'll probably laugh, but uh, it was, in fact, direct potable reuse, hooking up the, <laughs> waste, the wastewater plants in Philadelphia to the drinking water plants. You're ahead of your time. You're ahead of your time. <laughs> way, way ahead of your time. Uh, he thought it was pretty amusing, but he was a, he's a gentleman, uh, and you know, he was president of AWWA, and just, just an amazing guy, and he convinced me that public service, especially uh, working in the water uh, business, was a great way for an engineer to uh, to be of service to his community, and, and I've, uh, I've never turned my back since. Great. Now, you have a lot of – you get your fingers in a lot of pies, uh, especially online. You've got a couple blogs. One of them is the Safe Drinking Water blog. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that came to be and the type of content you're putting out through the Safe Drinking Water blog? Sure. Um, the, the title of the blog is safedrinkingwater.dot.com, all one word. Um, it's it's really a, an outgrowth of a uh, newsletter that I produced for eight years. Um, we had ultimately about 6,000 followers. Uh, this was from about 2000 to 2008, where we um, actually, on a weekly basis, would publish news stories about water from around the world. Um, we had to stop it because there, were, there was just no money and, uh, and no personnel to do it anymore. But uh, I always wanted to get back into the um, communication areas. And I started this blog, uh, SafeDrinkingWater.com, because... I wanted to have an opportunity to have a more narrative, longer, more narrative kinds of uh, essays about water, water quality, and uh, in the environment in general. So that's why I started that. And, um, and at the same, just about the same time, I started another blog, which was had a much different, uh, different kind of approach. And could you tell us about that one, please? Yes. Uh, the title is "This Day in Water History." It's uh, a daily blog. I've been doing it now for about 16 or 17 months, um, publishing on a daily basis um, things that I find to be interesting from history having to do with water. And that's everything from um, <laughs> the, bas the Basilica uh, Cistern in, uh, um, in Istanbul, which is from the 4th century A.D. to um, – things that happened uh, in New York Times headlines in 2013. So it's uh, a really quite a mix. Uh, I try to keep it kind of light and amusing. Sometimes it's a little more serious. Um, I, I do try to catalog the great men and women uh, of the, in the water business, and that's water, wastewater, and, and the broader water community, uh, who have uh, been born and ultimately passed away uh, over the last 150 years. And uh, in terms of your your work there, you know it it covers a broad stretch. You know why why is water history so important? What what can we learn from from these articles you're posting on this day in water history? The parallels between 100 to 150 years ago and today are startling. Uh, I find them incredibly startling. Uh, some of the same problems that we're faced with today, uh, they were struggling with back then. Uh, we made progress, of course, but some of the issues, uh, you, you will, they will sound familiar to you, David. Uh, <laughs> chemophobia. People are afraid of chemicals. They have been 
for a very long time. And uh, at the turn of the 20th century, there was just a, a, an absolute um, prohibition against putting chemicals into drinking water of any kind, even to treat the water, even something like alum, aluminum sulfate, to coagulate the water. Uh, people, uh, both engineers and the public, uh, refused to do it. And so even putting in chlorine for chemical disinfection was also um, thought to be anathema. Uh, it just, you just didn't do something like that. And as a result, people were dying by the uh, train load, I'm sorry to say, uh, of typhoid fever and diarrheal diseases at that time. Now, we don't suffer from typhoid fever and diarrheal diseases in the United States, but some of the same problems in developing countries, the exact same problems, including an incredibly high death rate of children under the age of one year due, due to diarrheal diseases, is happening today in uh, developing countries. And it's, uh, it's a sad, sad state of affairs, uh, but it's something that we as professionals, I think, have to uh, point these things out and point out the lessons of history and how uh, we as a society and other societies can overcome these problems. But I wholeheartedly agree with you. And you've, you've written an interesting book that I think is at the intersection of safe drinking water and water history called The Chlorine Revolution, The History of Water Disinfection and the Fight to Save Lives. Can you tell us a little bit about why you published this book and how it came about? My uh, interest in water history really began with a request by the editor of the Journal of the American Waterworks Association to write an article about the history of disinfection. Um, I decided to cast that history in the United States uh, in a series of what I call revolutions, uh, revolutions being after uh, a particular breakthrough, uh, the disinfection of drinking water was never the same. Uh, one of those, the first revolution was the first introduction of chlorine on a continuous basis to disinfect a water supply, which happened in Jersey City, New Jersey's water supply in 1908. Uh, some of the other subsequent revolutions are the discovery and implementation of chloramines, the discovery of disinfection byproducts, and, and the like. But the first one intrigued me because there seemed to be some real personalities involved, and I got a hint that the fellow who was maybe the one who made all of this happen wasn't getting the credit that he really deserved, that Dr. John Leal uh, was the driving force uh, behind putting chlorine into drinking water but most of the histories of that period uh, gave the, um, the credit for this to somebody else. Mm. What, could you tell us a little bit about the story of Dr. Leal and, and especially in this era of, as you mentioned, chemophobia, why would he be putting chlorine into the drinking water supply? What, what brought that about? He had some special skills. Um, I'm convinced that a pure engineer would never have done done what he did because, you know, he uh, engineers at that time and even today are very conservative. History repeats itself. Um, <laughs> Attorneys are too. <laughs> well, there you are. Uh, but John Leal was not an engineer, although he did a lot of engineering in his career. He was a physician. He was trained as a doctor. He went to uh, Princeton undergrad and Columbia 
University grad school uh, for his uh, MD. Pretty smart guy back in the day when if you were a butcher, you could hang up a shingle that said you were a doctor. Uh, so he, uh, he really was quite, quite bright. Uh, he went to work uh, for the city of Patterson, New Jersey, where he really grew up uh, as a city official in the public health area. He ended up being the uh, public health officer for the city of Patterson. And in that, in that position, he became completely exposed to all of the dread diseases of the time. There was a smallpox epidemic. There were several typhoid fever epidemics. Uh, diphtheria was rampant in killing children uh, just at an unbelievable rate. So in the midst of dealing with all this, he used chlorine in a solution to wash down the walls and the ceilings and the floors of the houses where people be, had become sick with uh, uh, communicable diseases. This was called, quote-unquote, disinfection. Sometimes they would burn sulfur. Uh, sometimes they would uh, wash it down with, with, believe it or not, uh, a mercury compound. And this was all about uh, the fact that we were still holding on to the theory of the miasma cause of disease. In other words, that bad smells or air cause disease. Um, but this, this uh, knowledge of his about chlorine, and he was well-trained as a bacteriologist. He had started to do some of his own research in the laboratory, uh, I believe at Patterson, although the records are not so great. Uh, and he became convinced that by putting a very small amount of chlorine into the drinking water, he could kill the bacteria that were killing people. So uh, it was his opportunity in working on the Jersey City water supply that made it possible for him to try out uh, his theory and uh, to show that it could be done. Got it. Now, when he wanted to put that chlorine into the Jersey City supply, was it embraced by Jersey City? What, you know, how, how did the implementation go? is he put it into the Jersey City water supply without telling them that he was doing it. Okay, and what's the long answer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, when I read that, uh, in fact, he testified to this at the second trial. The uh, opposing counsel asked him whose permission he got to put chlorine into the water, and he said, I didn't ask anybody's permission. I just did it. Now, remember, this is uh, a long time ago. There was no U.S. EPA. The state health department was not regulating water treatment. Um, it, it was uh, kind of the Wild West, if you will, and this was a, a private water supply that he was a, a water company, excuse me, that he was working for. To back up two steps, um, all of this came about because uh, after he left employment at uh, Patterson, New Jersey, he became a water quality and water treatment expert for the largest private water company on the East Coast a company called the East Jersey Water Company, and a subsidiary of theirs called the Jersey City Water Supply Company. He essentially turned his back on his uh, career as a doctor and as a uh, public health official and focused completely on improving the quality of drinking water. I think that it was because of his father that he did this. His father was a, uh, a, a surgeon uh, in a, a New York regiment in the Civil War, his father contracted uh, what must have been amoebic dysentery along with most of the other regiments at the siege of Charleston, South Carolina. 
uh, and his father suffered from that terrible disease, which had no cure then, for 17 years before it killed him. Um, and it was clear that it was contaminated water. So I think his father's illness and death really affected Dr. Leo to take uh, the opportunity to work in, in water and try to improve things. So he was working for the Jersey City Water Supply Company, which had a contract with the city of Jersey City to produce a new water supply to, <laughs> to replace all of the contaminated ones that they had been using in the past, some really bad ones, in fact. Um, and John, um, Leo was responsible for what was going on and trying to get rid of all of the privies and other sources of raw sewage going into the Rockaway River, which is where the, the company put a dam uh, and backed up a reservoir called Luton Reservoir. They connected that to Jersey City in a 23-mile-long pipeline, and on in 1904, they turned that water supply over to the city of Jersey City uh, and requested their payment of about $175 million in today's dollars for the water supply as per their contract. Well, in, Jer in New Jersey in those days, and you will hear an echo of today's little interesting things going on in Jersey, uh, Jersey City did not exactly want to pay for what they said they could contract it to pay. And so one of the negotiating techniques was to sue the contractor and raise some issues with the contract. Never heard that before. Yeah, <laughs> never right. never heard that before. So, and In this case, they, they, they had a bacteriologist look at the water. And indeed, since there was no treatment to this water, which was very common at the time, he found high levels of bacteria going into the cities from this uh, reservoir. The reservoir actually helped uh, uh, actually reduce the bacteria, but as you might imagine, uh, there's plenty of bacteria left over, and it was going into the city. And there was a trial where the city said, the contract says you provide us with pure and wholesome water, and you didn't. Uh, the judge agreed. He said the water is not pure and wholesome because of several times during the year there are rain events and stuff gets washed into the water. And so he said, you, you must build sewers in the watershed or provide, quote, other plans or devices, unquote, to uh, mitigate the problem. Um, and so those other plans or devices uh, that Dr. John Leal came up with was chlorination. And it was his, um, his leadership in putting that in, even if we didn't tell the city about it, uh, and, and he was never criticized for that. I find that absolutely astonishing, except for that one little uh, exchange on the witness stand. Uh, there was nothing ever in the newspaper or anything like that. He was never criticized because it became uh, well accepted after uh, this trial, the second trial, because the judge agreed that chlorination of, of drinking water was safe, reliable, and effective. And chlorine use exploded across the United States. That's absolutely fascinating, uh, especially what, what you point out, that he was never criticized. In terms of after that first trial, what was the implementation phase like? How long did they have to come up with an alternative to sewering the entire city? Three months. <laughs> and so how, how, did they, how did they come up with an implementation plan in just three months? I mean, that seems remarkable, especially when you know, projects take just so long today. I don't think you can pull a permit in three months. <laughs> 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 or, or certainly. 
certainly prepare an environmental impact report, but I digress. Um, The way it was done was uh, John Leal found and hired, not found because he knew him, but he hired the finest civil civil sanitary engineer at the time, a fellow by the name of George Warren Fuller. Uh, Fuller worked in New York City, but he had projects all over the United States. Uh, He was, without a doubt, the most well-known and most highly regarded sanitary engineer. Uh, He didn't live very far from where Leo lived, and uh, on one fine day in June in 1908, uh, Leo crossed the Hudson River and went to see uh, um, uh, George Warren Fuller in his offices on Broadway uh, in Manhattan, hired him on the spot, probably on the basis of a handshake, and 99 days later, Imagine this. 99 days later, uh, Fuller had designed and constructed a chemical feed system for a chemical that had never been used in drinking water before. It was bleaching powder, for heaven's sake. They used it in laundries, but it had never been used in drinking water before, and it worked perfectly from day one. That's absolutely amazing. The implications of that are are tremendous. What? Just think about what had happened if that system had not worked, what, where have you given any thought to where we might be if that system had failed? I think it would have set disinfection back decades, uh, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more people would have died as a result of contaminated water, uh, as a result of the delay. I think ultimately we would have got gotten to the place where we are today, but um, you know, Leo overcame uh, huge barriers to disinfection of drinking water through force of his personality and his expertise and his doggedness. Um, and so that's why it happened in 1908 when it, when, when it did happen. The, the first day of chlorination was September 26, 1908. And Jersey City is, has the longest period of record for continuous disinfection of any water supply in the world. It's over 105 years now. So it was due to Leo and, and his uh, stubbornness and his courage uh, that made it happen, uh, and without all of that, without Dr. Leo, I'm certain that it would have been set set the whole system back uh, decades. And without the fine engineering skill of uh, of Fuller, uh, you can imagine what if they had had a dump of the chlorine into the city, and thousands of parts per million of chlorine had burned uh, people in the city. It would have been a horror show. Uh, so. It was, uh, again, I think probably a combination of good luck and some uh, really smart people working to solve a problem. Yeah, it's just absolutely amazing. Now, hearing you talk, you apparently have really done a deep dive into what transpired back then. Can you talk a little bit about how you researched this and the sources of information uh, that you used to, to piece this story together? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, as you might imagine, I first started out with secondary sources. Uh, one of the best uh, sources I found was a book written by Moses N. Baker um, that was published in 1948, reprinted in 1981, that's the copy that I have, uh, called The Quest for Pure Water. And in about five or six lines, uh, sentences, he mentions this situation in Jersey City about Dr. Leal and the fact that Leal was not given the credit uh, and that really, you know, got me thinking about working on this and working on the paper for the journal. And I started pulling references, uh, started looking at, at stuff online. And I have to tell you, without Google Books, 
I would not have been able to write that the book that I wrote. Uh, there, prior to 1923, all of the books that have been scanned in from some of the great libraries in this country, like uh, Stanford University, uh, Harvard Public School, uh, School of Public Health, University of Michigan School of Public Health, with all, without all that, which are keyword searchable, I would not have been able to find the amazing things that I found. So that was one way to locate some primary sources and some other secondary sources. But I knew that I had to find the transcript for the trial because the trial was the center of all of this. It was the ruling by the judge in the second trial which made chlorine acceptable to the public and to the professional. So um, I found the first six volumes of the trial in, a, in the uh, Jersey City Public Library. Uh, they were in terrible condition, um, and they, I read through some of it, and it didn't have anything about chlorine in it. You know, this was the first trial, not the second. So I was a little discouraged, um, and also there is where I found a lot of the information where somebody else was getting the credit for the first fluorination. And I, on this trip, it was a research trip back east, um, I called a friend of mine. I remembered that Laura Cummings, who had worked out here in California, uh, was, a, was a, a good friend, but we hadn't talked in a while, but she was working in North Jersey at a water utility, and I called her and told her what I was doing and asked her, uh, I had I actually couldn't even remember where she was working, but she told me, and I asked her if there were any old papers around or reports, and she started talking about what they might have, and while she was talking, I realized that she was working on the site of the first modern filtration plant that was designed and built by George Warren Fuller in 1902. So I became very excited uh, because I knew that there must be some resources there that I, I, I could find. So I, I asked if I could come right over. She said, sure. Um, she showed me some old stuff that they had, but it was from the 50s, 1950s, 1940s, and not very interesting. But then she said, I, we have a museum that uh, I'd love to show you. Uh, maybe there's some papers over there. So we walked over to this thing that looks like a garage. It was unheated. This was in January, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> unheated, uh, dark, covered with about, and I'm not exaggerating, a half an inch of dust. Uh, when I was working in there for two days, I looked like a coal miner after I came out. <laughs> but um, we came into this low-lit uh, room, walked up some stairs, and turned on a light. And you could barely see across the room, but over in one corner, I could see a bookcase that went from floor to ceiling and stretched about 15 feet uh, from side to side. And in that bookcase were a lot of books and papers. And as I started walking towards it, I got more and more excited because it was clear that this was a very important depository of historical records. And in that, in that bookcase, I found three complete copies of the transcripts of the trial. Oh, wow. What a find. Uh, it was a great day. It turns out that this was the law library for the lawyer who defended the Jersey City Water Supply Company, along with Leal, in the first and second trials. I found a copy of the trial transcript of William H. Corbin, the attorney who, of record who defended the, uh, the private water company, with his pencil notes in the margin. Uh, of these books. So that 
soon as I found that, I knew that I had enough for a book because it was a treasure trove of information. Oh, I bet that was absolutely fascinating to read through that. Um, well, in terms of uh, chlorination, how quickly did it spread? Once, once chlorination, uh, once Jersey, the, the, the court in the Jersey City 2 case had ruled, uh, was it widely adopted? Was the chemophobia still an issue there in terms of, of people saying, no, we don't want chlorinated water? Or? Well, most of, the, most of the resistance to it disappeared because the court said that it was safe, effective, and reliable. That really had a huge impact on professionals and the public. It was widely reported in the newspapers. Um, and so five years after the first implementation, um, 43% of municipal water supply customers in the United States were receiving chlorinated water. Wow. Four, and, 43% yep, in five years. Wow. In five years. And another four years, it was 73%. So when I say it exploded across the United States, I'm not exaggerating. The reason was is that this was a relatively inexpensive technology. You could build a gravity feed system uh, fairly inexpensively and quickly, as we know from what Leo, uh, Leo and Fuller were able to do. Um, and you could protect people from you know, being killed from typhoid fever uh, for pennies. And so many, many utilities adopted it just as soon as they could. Okay. Fascinating. And, and you know, if you look at population maps, that's really when – the the human population in the world just started absolutely taking off. So a lot of us wouldn't may not have be here today were it not for the uh, the courage and innovation of Dr. Leal and George Warren Fuller. Is that is that a fair statement? I agree completely. Yeah. Um, the average uh, life expectancy in, in 1900 was 47 years. 47 years. Uh, today, it's 78 years. And, of course, women live a lot longer than men. But, uh, you know, it's astonishing what, what we have been able to do. Uh, a lot of people think it's because of our better medical care, but a great deal of it has to do with the fact that we're not killing people by, by sending uh, contaminated water to their homes. Uh, it's a, it's a, it was a huge benefit. And I think it's when it, it was only as a result of us putting out, uh, you know, water that wasn't killing folks that, that allowed us to then grow and develop into a world power. I, I'm convinced that that's part of it. Mm, that, that's a fascinating perspective. Um, I, we're kind of, we're coming up against it on time. I'd like to discuss a pivot a little bit and talk about uh, some of the other things that you've put onto your blog. Uh, you wrote a great article uh, about boiled in China and I, th- I found it fascinating as, as to why the Chinese boil their water. Could you give us a little background just about uh, what went into your, your trip to China and discuss the, the boiled in China post? I'd be glad to. Um, again, this was, the whole idea for this came as a result of a personal experience I had. Uh, I was invited to uh, China to speak at a number of universities about uh, well, actually, about my book and uh, and drinking water treatment. So this was uh, May of 2013, um, and I was just thrilled to be able to do it. So uh, I went over and uh, talked talked at all of these places, and and I was treated 
truly like an emperor. I mean, the Asian hospitality is just so much better than what we do in this in this country. You know, we have visitors come here and we tell them to go to McDonald's, uh, sort of. Uh, there, <laughs> there they take you out for a banquet. <laughs> and while I was at these banquets, um, uh, I don't drink alcohol and I can't drink tea at night because I, I'm very sensitive to caffeine. So I would ask for water. And every time I was served, boiled water, literally hot water coming out of a thermos. Then I asked and, and people said, well, yeah, we always drink hot water. Um, and that intrigued me. Uh, why? So I started re researching it, and uh, it, it was clear that this, this drinking of boiled water was inextricably linked with uh, drinking tea, um, all of which uh, both drinking boiled water and drinking tea can be traced back uh, almost 5,000 years in Chinese culture. Uh, and since uh, that time, uh, it's just been a, a very, very important part of how Chinese people um, uh, drink um, uh, various liquids. You can ask a uh, – I, I teach at UCLA, and there are, are a number of uh, students there who are Chinese and from Chinese mainland or their parents were. And I was telling them about my book and telling them about the boiled uh, boiling water in China. And, and they said – they came up to me afterwards, and they said, yeah, my mom makes me drink boiled water here in the United <laughs> States. And I keep telling her that it's okay. You know, it's safer. But I said – Please don't even try to talk her out of it. You're 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 dealing with thousands of years of Chinese history, uh, and it's really embedded in the culture that you do not drink cold water. Uh, that's in fact bad for digestion. But uh, hot boiled water, uh, water that is just been boiled, or tea is uh, only that only that's acceptable. And I, I just uh, I think it's a, a very interesting cultural uh, icon for. For the Chinese, and it's something um, that uh, those of us here in the West uh, can certainly relate to. Yeah, just absolutely fascinating stuff. You're, a lot of your posts on your blogs, they're just stuff you'd never think about, and they really open your eyes to some things. So I, I'd encourage everyone to uh, check out Mike's blogs. Uh, and we'll in the show notes, I will have links to the blogs. Uh, I would also note that your water history group on LinkedIn is I think one of the better LinkedIn groups. Uh, you do a great job moderating that and keeping all the, you know, the, the ads and things like that off of it. And it's just fascinating stuff and a great dialogue uh, amongst people in the water industry. And uh, I'll also have a link. Uh, it's not an affiliate link, but I'll have a link to uh, your book in the show notes as well. Uh, where could, where can people find that? I assume Amazon. I've, is one of the places yeah. where it can be purchased uh, anywhere else. Is there, is there anywhere that you would like to send folks uh, who want to learn more about you, Mike, uh, where, where should they go? Well, anybody can just Google my name. Um, I show up pretty early in the, the Google uh, uh, results. Um, but then also um, if you want, if, if people are interested in ordering the book in bulk, for example, and they're members of the American Waterworks Association, or even if they're not, uh, they should go to uh, awwa.org and uh, type in the chlorine revolution in the search uh, engine, and uh, they will get in touch with people who um, who are marketing and selling the book for AWWA, who is the publisher. Uh, we just uh, released the paperback uh, in January. Prior to that, it was uh, only in hardback, and uh, they sold out. So they reprinted it as 
as a paperback, and uh, that is now now being sold both through Amazon and through AWWA. Well, terrific. Well, Mike, I know you're a busy man. I I only asked for 30 minutes of your time. We've gone over that, and I, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Uh, I've learned a lot here, and I hope uh, you, the listeners, did as well. Uh, terrific interviews, and I can't wait to uh, to check out future blog posts and things like that. So, Mike, thank you for your time. Greatly appreciated. Thanks for having me, David. You bet. We'll talk to you soon, Mike. Bye. Well, that was my interview with Mike McGuire, and what a great interview. The story he told is the reason why today in the United States, drinking water is essentially taken for granted. The fact that the chlorination system that Dr. Leal and George Warren Fuller developed for the Jersey City water supply was done in just 99 days from conception to actually in use it was absolutely mind-boggling. It's amazing that that three-month period changed the course of history and paved the way for the population boom of the 20th century. Mike's thoughts as to the role that chlorination of the drinking water supply played in the United States' rise as a world power are also very intriguing. And as a lawyer, I particularly found interesting Mike's story about finding the trove of the lawyer for Jersey City's information um, concerning that second Jersey City case. That was just absolutely fascinating that, that he was able to find that. What a That's like finding a needle in a haystack. Also, the story of how chlorination of the drinking water supply came to be accepted in the United States contrasted sharply with Mike's story about drinking water in China and how tea is so culturally intertwined in the manner in which drinking water serves in Chinese culture. Well, what interested you about the interview? Please let me know by posting a comment on the show notes, which will be posted at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod four. That's thewatervalues.com forward slash pod number four. I also appreciate any feedback you have for me, good, bad, or indifferent, by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com, or you can tweet at me at DTM1993. That's at DTM1993. Contact me with suggestions for potential interviewees, water issues you'd like to hear more about, or even just to let me know what you liked and what you didn't like about the podcast. As I've said before, I'm always trying to improve, and I want to deliver to you the information about water that you want to hear. I appreciate your support by spreading the word about the Water Values Podcast and by providing an honest review on iTunes and Stitcher. And I promise you this, I'll never turn down a five-star review. In closing, as always, thank you for listening to the Water Values Podcast, and please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So join me in going out into the world and acting like it. You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us.